You may be seated. Well, happy Advent, uh, this fourth Sunday of the season. I uh, <clears throat> missed being with you last Sunday. If this is any indication, it is the correct indication. I am empathizing with those of you who, yes, you, Jamie, coughs, the voice isn't there. But as, uh, <clears throat> as Wayne Buell said to me this morning, camper, last uh, weekend you got the gift that I do not want for Christmas, you got the flu. You can have it, leave it at your house. So I did, uh, pretty much sidelined the week, but uh, feeling uh, good now except for a recovering voice. So I do pray that you would, uh, would uh, bear with it, especially if it begins to fade over the next half hour. If it does, that just means a shorter sermon. <laughs> so on a, uh, a brighter note, I got something else this past week. Uh, I got this in the mail. Now, you may be saying, only one? You only got one Christmas card? Well, it, it kind of looks like a Christmas card, but it's actually a birth announcement. And I didn't plan it. It came uh, this, uh, this week, just in time uh, for me to use it in my sermon. Uh, it's got the child's name, uh, his size, time of his birth. But what if that was all it had? I mean, I, I pull out the postcard, nice picture. William, six pounds, five ounces. November 3rd, 2014. Yeah, but whose kid is it? <clears throat> Fortunately, birth announcements always include the family, or at least they should. In this case, it does. Uh, in this case, it's the Smiths, our friends uh, Margaret and uh, Mark. So congratulations to them. Well, in our, uh, in our Advent series, we have been considering the greatest birth announcement ever given. Uh, his name, the first week of Advent. His name, Jesus, from the Greek, Joshua. The Lord saves. Yahweh saves. His size. In other words, the enormity of his love. Its height, its depth, its breadth its length. Then last week, the time of his birth. Uh, as the Apostle Paul puts it uh, in Galatians, at just the right time, at the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman. Well, today we wrap up our Advent series by considering his family. Who were his mom and dad? And why does it matter? So the, the larger context is actually where we started uh, three weeks ago, the first Sunday of the season. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 is what I'll read. You'll find it on page 807. And our particular focus uh, will be on verses 18 and 20. And we will actually use those verses eventually as a springboard into another text. Um, but before we hear God's word, let's take a moment to pray. We look to you once again, to you, the God who speaks. We thank you for your word. We pray now that you would open us to your word and your word to us. 
and that you would speak the truth of your gospel into our hearts and that our hearts would be revived, that we would be transformed, that we would believe the truth. We ask it all in Jesus. Amen. So I invite you to hear the word of God from Matthew chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God for our good and his glory. And so let's turn to it now. So again, we're considering Jesus's family. Uh, Who were his parents? Why does this matter? So first, who were his mom and dad? Well, pretty clear. uh, Verses uh, 18 and 20. Birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. His mother Mary, betrothed, uh, before she and Joseph came together, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Then verse 20, the angel speaking to Joseph, saying, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So this was no ordinary conception, no ordinary child, a human mother, a divine father. Jesus was conceived in the womb of his human mother by the miraculous work of his divine father through the Holy Spirit. I love the picture that uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones paints in her great work, the Jesus Storybook Bible. She writes, she puts it this way. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, As he laughed with such gladness, Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. You will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. And he's the one. He's the rescuer. Wow. The God who flung planets into space and kept them whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just one word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small 
in coming down as a baby. God was sending a baby to rescue the world. Now, more historically, many of you know this is the Apostles' Creed. We profess, I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Well, that's the heart of Christmas, the incarnation, God becoming man, the God-man, fully God and fully man. Okay, but second, why does this matter? Why, what, what are the implications of this? Why is it so important that we revisit it time and time again? That Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. That he is fully God and fully man. This is the beauty and the power of Christianity. Because every other religion is about how we can find God. What we must do to get to God. But Christianity is about what God has already done for us. About God coming to find us in Jesus. Now as we continue to reflect on the significance of the incarnation... God becoming man, God coming to us, for us, I want to revisit a familiar story. It'll be familiar to most, uh, if not all of you, uh, one that highlights both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. I have loved this story for years, read it time and time again, but I never quite made this particular connection in this particular way until earlier in the year when I, I was reading through several essays uh, and two of them that had caught my attention were by Wayne Grudem and Tim Keller and I happened to be reading them at the same time. So if you could turn with me to John chapter 11. You'll find it on page uh, 897 if you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you. <clears throat> Now, you will see that this is the story of Jesus and Lazarus. And you might think, isn't this an Easter text? Well, isn't Easter born out of Christmas? So it's a Christmas text as well. And I think we'll see that very clearly. And as you, uh, as you turn there, I'm not going to read the whole passage, in part because it's long, in part because I just don't think I could handle it this morning. But I'm going to give you a little background first. So as you know, as you probably know, there's a man named Lazarus. He is extremely sick. In fact, he is on the verge of death. Uh, he is the brother of Mary and Martha. He is also a very dear friend of Jesus. Well, the two sisters send for their friend. They send for Jesus. But Jesus doesn't arrive in Bethany for a couple of days. When he finally arrives, the family and friends are in mourning and Lazarus' body is already sealed in a tomb. What happens next? It's one of the most famous events in the history of the world. And if you know the story, you remember that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But first, this is what happens. John chapter 11, beginning with verse 17. 
Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Well, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here. He's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he asked, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Well, we'll stop there for now. I want you to note that both Martha and Mary come to Jesus, and they say the very same thing. I mean, it's the exact words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Two sisters, same circumstance, same words to Jesus. And yet, you might notice that their postures are slightly different when they approach Jesus, and his response to each sister is quite different. It's a stark contrast. So let's think about that for a moment. <clears throat> okay, with Martha, Jesus is more emphatic. In, in a sense, compassionate, but he is confronting her unbelieving heart with the reality of his power. And with Mary, Jesus is more empathic. He is comforting her grieving heart with the reality of his presence. With Martha, Jesus points her away from despair to true hope in him, saying pointedly and powerfully, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, it is never 
too late with me. With Mary, Jesus simply enters into her pain and sorrow with tears, saying virtually nothing. Why the stark contrast? And here's what I hadn't really noticed before. But what we have in this passage, we see here dramatically what we often hear propositionally throughout the rest of the New Testament. Jesus is truly God and he's fully man. And it's on display in a drama that unfolds before, before these two women and it unfolds before us. The incarnation. That's what is here. In his encounter with Martha, we get a glimpse of his profound power, the strong and mighty. He is God. In his encounter with Mary, we see Jesus' personal presence, the humble and brokenhearted. He is human. So let's consider the encounter with Martha for a moment. <clears throat> so Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and, and Martha responds, yeah, okay, I, I know this, that he's going to be raised on the last day, but, but what about now? You see, like most Jews of her day, Martha believed in a general resurrection, that God would not abandon his people at the end of history, but rather he would raise them up to share in his new kingdom, a kingdom that was to come. And Jesus proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, the last day has come. I am God, and I am establishing my kingdom. Believe in me, and you will be a part of my kingdom. And today, you will see proof of that reality. As I was looking at this passage, it reminded me of something that took place up here. It was just about seven years ago, about this time in the year. I think she was about uh, a month old, um, but I had the opportunity to baptize little Zoe Mays, a daughter of Patricia and Eric. And I remember holding little Zoe up here, and I told her about her name. Do you know what her name means, Zoe? Well, it's a Greek word. It refers to abundant life, life in the fullest, life in the most complete sense. When Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he doesn't use the word bios, another Greek word. He doesn't use the word bios related to our word biology, meaning physical, natural life. He doesn't use that word. He uses the much more profound word zoe. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the zoe. I am ultimate life beyond what your eyes can see. I am life to the fullest in the most complete sense. Jesus is saying, I am going to take on the sin of the world. I am going to absorb the wrath that sin demands. I am going to die in your place, and yet I am going to conquer death because I am Zoe, and I am greater than death. And if you believe in me and trust me with your life, then you will know this 
greater reality of Zoe, Martha. Today, you will see proof of this reality. God's kingdom has come. It is coming in fullness. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, true life, full life. And he asks, do you believe this? Are you trusting Jesus? Because if you are, there's more. Okay, now let's briefly consider Jesus' encounter with Mary. So in his encounter with Mary, again, Jesus says virtually nothing. He asks a question. That's it. But it's not even to Mary. It's to the people that are there. He, He says nothing to Mary, but instead breaks down sobbing. Because here, it's not so much about his words, but more so about his heart. And it reveals so much. We see that Jesus feels the weight of Mary's pain and suffering. He is weeping. He feels the weight of death, and it hurts. Jesus enters into Mary's sorrow, and he does so with full sincerity and integrity and simply yet profoundly weeps with her. Keller writes, here we see deity joined to human vulnerability. His love pulls him down into weeping. Despite the fact that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is God, He responds to Mary in this way precisely because he is fully human as well. He is one with us, and he feels the horrific power of death and the grief of love lost. Jesus is the truth itself come to tears. He is the deity incarnate in the flesh. And it is this paradox that he is both God and human that gives Jesus an overwhelming beauty. This is what gives Jesus the overwhelming beauty that is his and his alone. And then as John is telling this story, recounting this event to us, he then invites us further into the story so that we might see the absolute ferociousness of this overwhelming beauty. So picking up verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. Stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been there four days. Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I mean, what an amazing scene. Jesus calls Lazarus by name out of the grave and the dead man comes out. The word of God speaks and the dead receives life. But something that's so easy to miss here is that something stunning happens right before all of this. Because first, Jesus gets mad. Did you realize that? Not only does Jesus weep in this passage, but he gets ticked off. Verse 38. Verse 38, and the same phrase is used in verse 33, it says that Jesus was deeply moved, that he was deeply moved when going to the tomb. And the problem is that phrase, deeply moved, doesn't come close to capturing the actual Greek word. I looked through translation after translation after translation to see if anyone would give it the thrust of what is there. I couldn't find it. But it is a word that literally means to bellow with anger. Jesus is absolutely furious. He's bellowing with rage. He is roaring like a ferocious lion. That is what is going on. Or in the words of John Calvin, Jesus approaches the tomb as a dangerous champion prepared for battle. In other words, Jesus is ready to cut the head off of Goliath. He is raging against death. He is bellowing with anger at the loss of life and the loss of loved ones because it is not supposed to be this way. Now, as we read this text... And even as I offer this explanation, I mean, it's, it's hard to picture, isn't it? I mean, to really, to really get our minds around Jesus raging at death. <clears throat> I remember the first time that I, I really began to understand what was going on here. It was my, uh, my second year of seminary. Uh, I was in a, uh, a class. That we weren't looking at John 11. We weren't looking at John at all. In fact, it was a biblical interpretation class. We were looking at, at the book of Galatians uh, with uh, Dr. Rick Watts. The classroom was set up very much like this, very small. There were only about a dozen of us in there, but set up where Rick was lecturing from the front. We were sitting in the few seats out here. And the entry was the, do the doors in the back of the room. So as we were walking through a portion of Galatians that day, there's a knock on the door in the back. Glass doors, just like we have here, and Rick sees somebody that we all know, a young woman named Karis, and he says, you know, come on in. And Karis comes in and just looks devastated. And she says, 
I have some, some news to share. And really, I've come here that we could stop and pray. I'm going from classroom to classroom. And she had news about a friend of ours, Matt Swanson. Matt wasn't in the class. He was a seminary friend. In fact, he and I had been paired up together in our preaching class to, to give the first uh, two sermons uh, in that class. And I will never forget what he preached. Preached out of Joshua, be strong and courageous. And the news that I was about to hear was going to take all of God's grace to uphold him to be strong and courageous. Matt and I were about the same age. Um, late 20s, I believe he was, married, three very young boys. And Karis announced to us that he had just been diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer and that he did not have much time to live. Well, we, we were just staggering as a class. But what I definitely will never forget is what happened next. Because we're all looking at the back as Karis is giving us the news. But all of a sudden, boom! We look to the front. And there is our Professor Rick. His face is red with anger. And tears are pouring down his cheeks. And he is looking out saying, this is an assault on God's good creation. And then he looked at us and he said, and death will not have the last word. Amen. Rick was raging with anger at death. But he was also doing something else. Because of Jesus, with Jesus, Rick was looking ahead beyond what the eye could see. Rick was looking beyond what was right in front of us and seeing the greater reality of Zoe. True biblical hope. Because faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. He was gripped by the victory of God, by the gift of God in Jesus, the one born on Christmas Day, the one born to die, the one born to die for us, that we, might be raised with him when he returns his second coming, his second advent. Christmas is a wonderful, wonderful time of year. I mean, as the song says, it is the most wonderful time of year. I was going to sing it for you. Sorry, I can't get there today. But... The most wonderful time of the year, and, and really for many of the reasons that the song sings of. And I, and I was thinking about, about some of the things that make Christmas one of those most wonderful times. And, you know, it might be the joy of a child's face opening gifts on Christmas morning. I mean, there's just nothing like it. 
whether they're your own children or someone else's children, or the beauty of Christmas lights throughout the house or the neighborhood, especially at night when the light pierces the darkness. It's magical. These are all good and wonderful things, but all things that are actually foretastes of even greater things to come. Advent is definitely a season for remembering Jesus' first coming, for sure. But equally, it is also a season for anticipating his return. The deepest longing, the deepest yearning of our hearts. Let's not stop with what's right in front of us, but let's look beyond. It's a season for looking beyond what the eye can see. Because again, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's a season to be gripped by the victory of God, by the gift of God in Jesus. Fully God, fully man, all-powerful, intimately personal. He cares. The one born on Christmas Day. The one born to die for us. That we might be raised with him when he returns. His second coming. His second advent. This is God's gift to you. Don't miss it this Christmas. But rejoice in the reality of God with us. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that you are the reality beyond what our eyes can see. We thank you that you have come to us and for us in Jesus that you would give your life for us, that we might know the fullness of life, that we might know you powerfully and personally. We thank you that in him, through faith, we are now part of your family forever. Lord Jesus, we long for your return, and we pray this Advent, come, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.